Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Germany sorting out a million asylum claims in a politically charged situation. We'll hear about the agency that does the assessing. Oak trees are a keystone species around here. We'll discuss how controlled burns affect the oaks. And Catalina Maria Johnson says Central America was well represented at South by Southwest. We'll hear some new artists on Global Notes. Don't forget you can join the conversation on Twitter at WBEZ Worldview. Germany's Federal Office of Migration and Refugees worked in relative anonymity for years. When the country welcomed a million asylum seekers, the agency was overwhelmed and caught in the middle of a fierce political debate. The Atlantic's Graham Wood gained unprecedented access to an asylum screening process that's rejected about a third of all applicants. And Graham is currently a visiting fellow at the University of Pennsylvania and joins us to discuss his piece, The Refugee Detectives in the Atlantic. Nice to talk with you, Graham Wood. Hey, how are you doing? You know, um, it's amazing to think about what kind of an effect a million asylum seekers would have on a on a federal agency. If you've got to talk to them all, they must have done an enormous amount of hiring and soul searching. Yeah, they were used to handling about, you know, in the tens of thousands of people per year, some years more, some years fewer. Uh, and then suddenly they had about a million in a year. So you know how, how um, stiff bureaucracies can be. So they had to staff up so they could manage way more people from areas they hadn't seen large numbers of people from before. And they had to talk to each one of them to figure out whether they qualified as refugees in Germany. And so in talking to each one of them, what does that end up entailing? I imagine if you're trying to establish facts and truth, uh, it, it, well, there's a lot riding on that conversation. Yeah. So imagine a, a person shows up and is talking to you and has no papers at all, um, speaks a language that you don't speak, and if and is claiming that if he or she is sent home, he'll be killed or tortured. Uh, and you have to figure out if, if the person is telling the truth. And if you determine that the person is not telling the truth and you send the person back, but the person was telling the truth, then um, that's going to be on your conscience for the rest of your life. So the employees of this agency really had to figure out ways to to ascertain whether someone was telling a true story. And this is hard in the best of circumstances. But when you have a million people fleeing war zones or claiming to flee war zones, and some of them just want a better life, want jobs, and then some of them really need, at the highest level of urgency, uh, safety from their home countries. So it, it's, it's, it's really tough. And BAMF is the name of the German agency, developed a lot of techniques really, really fast to figure out how to do that best. Now, I was surprised to read how uh, helpful facial recognition software is to them, but they seem to think it's a really big thing. Yeah, it, Germany has been doing this um, very well for refugees. There are other countries like China that have done it very shockingly well. 
um, in just for for you know just people on the street. So this is a technology that they've they've harnessed. But w- what does it really mean? It means that when someone shows up, they write down the person's name and then they associate it with a face, and they claim near quote godlike accuracy in determining whether that face is the same face as another face in their database, either someone who applied previously as a refugee or just who showed up on the radar, tried to get a driver's license, tried to get a visa. And so if you claim to be fleeing the war in Syria and be a Syrian, and it turns out that you applied for a German visa in Cairo as a Egyptian, then presumably that would show up on their database and they'd be able to ask you the hard question of how did you suddenly become a Syrian in the last five years or, or, or something. And so that that can ferret out at least a few people whose stories are, are inconsistent. And that's what they're looking for is inconsistencies in the stories, things that don't match up that they can really say, well, this, you know, it doesn't make sense. Exactly. They, they look for just little hints that there is more to a story that they need to to press on. So they will try to figure out whether perhaps your accent, you use a word that Syrians don't use, but that Jordanians do. And it could be that you spent some time in Jordan after fleeing Syria, but it could also mean that you're actually Jordanian and, and you're coming into Germany on the pretext of being a Syrian. So they would just ask more about that. Oh, you use that word. Why did you use that word? Why, why have, uh, you know, why does our, our, our system suggest that there's inconsistencies in your stories? And if you can't explain it, then that lowers the chance that you'll be approved for asylum in Germany permanently. It sounds like they um, fight, I don't know what to call it, fads, I guess, is fads in stories that um, people hear in the refugee community that uh, a certain story worked to get status, and then they all start telling it. Can can this really <laughs> work? Yeah, re- refugees are like any other humans. They have communities. They have communication amongst each other. Um, They almost all have cell phones. And so if there are refugees who show up from Syria uh, in Germany and they find that the refugee agencies, um, that the employees' eyes light up and they say, oh, that's terrible when they tell them a particular kind of story, they'll tell their friends. Um, Apparently, this kind of story really seems to work. And they'll respond to incentives. You'll hear more of those stories, both from people, and this is where it gets really complicated, both from people who really experienced that story, really experienced that kind of abuse or threat, and from people who didn't. So it, it, there is a, a kind of, of, um, of, of informal educational process that will happen among refugees to improve the stories. And some of, those, some of the, that improvement is, is straight-up lies, and some of it is, is something more like uh, just a, a better acquaintance with the process. And Banff has to figure out what the difference between those things is. I'm talking with The Atlantic's Graham Wood about his piece, The Refugee Detectives, talking about Germany's Federal Office for Migration and Refugees, which has been uh, working with a million asylum seekers recently and uh, finding that maybe about a third of them uh, don't qualify for asylum these days. Uh, you know, it, the whole idea of well-founded fear of persecution, it's um, – it seems to be almost made in another time, in a post-World War II time. And I, I, does it really fit what's happening for some of these people these days, even if they aren't facing uh, death or torture by a government entity? 
are is a lot of times their economic situation a life or death situation for their family and do the do the stories come up there where uh, these people are just in such a hard position that they've got to go you're quite right that the 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 phrasing you know um well-founded fear of persecution is basically it actually literally was written in the post world war 2 era that's when we started to to uh, come up with the legal terms and legal definitions of what a refugee is. And there is a lot of debate over whether we should narrowly understand this as someone who's fleeing political persecution. How about religious persecution? Does that count? Generally, we say yes. And then there's this category of, of economic migrants and the question of if someone facing grinding poverty, the likelihood that his or her children will die or be diseased because of the poverty that they have, does that count as, as being a refugee? And I think that there's a strong humanitarian reason to have a lot of sympathy for people who are in that situation. Um, but legally, that is not what the category of refugee is, not at the moment. So I think at least being clear about these things and accurate about them is 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 good. You know, we should be talking about our policy toward toward people who are fleeing grinding poverty. It might mean that you you know, you can't be a good parent if you're not doing absolutely everything including lying to get into the United States. But that doesn't make you a refugee. It makes you a fake refugee. Uh and that um I think that should be described exactly so. Uh, the people in the article, there's um, one instance where a man seems to have a well-founded fear of persecution, but he is um, he's sent back to Iran. Uh, what uh, can you describe that situation? Because there, there's, I, I imagine, when you get a million people, you get all kinds of different uh, situations, and this guy's was really strange. Yeah, the stories I would say more often than not are weird stories. You know, people are coming from countries where strange things happen, where there are chaotic situations, and in this particular case, it was it was super weird. Um, so there's an Iranian guy who showed up, and they looked at his passport and they saw that he had come to Germany many times before. So they said, "Well, what's what's the deal here? Apparently, you've gone back to Iran, this country that you say is going to persecute you." Why didn't you declare yourself uh, as an asylum seeker before? And he said, all right, you caught me. I'm not really seeking asylum in the normal way. I'm actually a child pornographer. And one of my clients got caught in Iran. And if I go back, they'll kill me. And so the German refugee agency said at that point, well, look, you're not a refugee. You're, this is actually a criminal case. And there might be rules. There are rules, in fact, about whether you can be sent back to your death, to another country. So he probably was not actually sent back. But you're not going to get in here claiming to be fleeing persecution because of your religion when you're actually uh, fearing um, being brought to what the Iranian government considers justice, but that doesn't conform to European human rights norms. All right. Um, You know, I think when people think about people fleeing, you know, that idea just doesn't come up. It's just like not in the lexicon of thought. No, I, I don't think that when people, you know, the, the, the paradigmatic refugee is, is someone who is in a population that's being exterminated uh, and who's trying to get out because of that. And I, I think in, in many, many cases, that's exactly what's happening. If you're a Yazidi who's fleeing Islamic State territory, or you're just someone who who is part of the general civilian population of Aleppo a year or so ago, 
then you've got a very strong case because of in the most in the classic refugee sense you're 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 fearing death um but in fact many of the stories are, are way more ambiguous than that much stranger than that and um you know this this Iranian one is one one of the stranger ones of course but yeah you know we're we're talking about dozens and dozens of countries that are contributing refugees and contributing asylum seekers and their stories are are often idiosyncratic and as a bureaucracy this um bureaucracy is looking for these stories that don't match because they are under a certain amount of political pressure to uh, to limit the number of refugees coming in the country. It sounds like one of the staffers said to you, one side of the political debate thinks we're bleeding hearts and the other side says we're fascists. And they, um, they're trying to find some way to hit the middle ground, I imagine. Very much so. Germany has had uh, its share of right-wing nationalists activity. Uh, in fact, there's a far right-wing party in Germans um, in Germany's parliament right now, which there hasn't been uh, in the post-war. So th- this is this is a really big deal in Germany. And um, you know, in the United States, we've had debates over immigration. We've had d- debates over refugees. But we're a country of, of 300 million people, and the number of refugees who've come in is, is minuscule. In Germany, it's a country of on the order of 80 million or so, and they've had more than a million people show up in a very short period of time. So all of the debate over how to manage the refugees, how many to send back, how to conform to, to uh, the norms of human rights in Germany and the laws, th- this is an absolutely decisive issue in German politics, and it nearly took down the government of Angela Merkel. So we're looking at an agency with a huge burden on its shoulders. If it fails, then her government fails, and that's sort of the keystone country of Europe right now. And so it could turn the tide of, of politics in Europe if, if this agency fails. So it, it has a lot riding on it. How did that pressure translate into their work? Do they feel like, well, we've got to find some, some people who do not qualify as refugees and get them out of here so that the government survives? Well, of course, they, um, they de-emphasize the political nature of what they do. They say, look, we are applying a law. And it, what we we assess everybody individually w- without prejudice to how the elections might go. On the other hand, I think they they do believe that, that um, by having uh, a, a, a having public trust in what they're doing, um, they are that it, that's an important part of of serving the German electorate, serving the country. So they are very. Um, they're very clear. They were trying to be. They tried to be very clear to me that everything they were doing was uh, transparent. They wanted to say that they were following rules, and that they weren't um, on either side of those extremes that 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 one of the employees described to me. That is, they weren't secretly trying to bring in more people, and they weren't secretly trying to get rid of people. So having a public understanding of, of the balance that they have on that knife's edge uh, is is pretty important for, for the German government right now. Um, did you come away from this encouraged about um, the, the the way things have gone there in Germany? Um, 
No, in general, no. I mean, I think that the precariousness of the German government uh, in the face of this refugee crisis uh, is extremely worrisome. I mean, I spoke to German politicians who who said the idea of the far right coming to power um, was was just inconceivable a few years ago. This is like the resurgence of of a kind of Nazism light, they said, and we didn't think that could happen. So the fragility was really something that 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 came across. Now, here's the positive side, though. BAMF, this agency that was managing all the refugees who were coming in, they were able to convince a lot of people that they had a procedure in place, that the policy that existed, the procedures that existed, weren't just um, an absence of procedures. It wasn't just people running in and then being given a, a German passport on arrival. And so... It does seem like there's at least some people who were were capable of having their minds changed, capable of being persuaded that um, that an agency was was doing things competently. So on the one hand, it showed the whole experience of watching this showed me that that politics are very fragile. Um, but on the margins, anyway, there are some people who can be persuaded that that uh, that that their government is is um, is trustworthy. The Refugee Detectives is Graham Wood's piece in The Atlantic. Graham is a visiting fellow at the University of Pennsylvania. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about a very interesting look inside Germany's Federal Office for Migration and Refugees. Thank you. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about oak trees. They're a keystone species around here. We'll talk about how controlled burns affects the oaks. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Habitat restoration is going strong in this area's woodlands and forest preserves. One of the key tools in habitat restoration is prescribed burns. There's a new study that says that frequent low-intensity burns might produce soil outcomes that are incompatible with restoration goals. We're going to talk about the study now with Dr. Megan Midgley. She is a soil ecologist at the Morton Arboretum and is co-author of the new report in Forest Ecology and Management. Thanks a lot for joining us. Absolutely. And also with us is Lydia Scott, director of the Chicago Region Trees Initiative at the Morton Arboretum. Good to see you again, Lydia. My pleasure to be here. Thank you. I think a lot of people, um, we're going to talk primarily about oak trees here and the effect that uh, burns have on oak trees. And oak trees are a keystone species in this region. They have uh, what's known as an oak ecosystem around them. Tell people something about this and its importance to our outdoors. Well, oaks are native to our area, and so prior to European settlement here in this region, oaks were the dominant uh, tree type in our region. And because oaks, as you say, are a keystone species, they support many other species that we rely on in our natural areas. So it really presents us with our natural heritage, these oak ecosystems. So oaks uh, provide habitat for all kinds of insects and birds and other uh, mammals, as well as providing opportunities for microscopic uh, wildlife as well. So because they are keystone species, those other species rely on them for their habitat and their food sources. And so they're very critical to us in our region. And the ground around the oak trees has uh, certain plant species 
species that are unique to that area. It becomes a it is a oak ecosystem. It is not just a oak tree. That's right. It creates a very specific habitat. Now, um, your study that talks about the soil in the oak ecosystem. Um, explain wh- what you found out about the prescribed burns that everybody does in almost every forest preserve these days. I was just out at uh, my Deer Grove Forest Preserve, and it was all crunchy and uh, burned up. Uh, everybody's doing them. What does it do to the soil? So early on at the Morton Arboretum, uh, we were one of the first institutions that started burning in woodlands and in forests. So we have a really unique area that's been burned annually for 30 years. So we were essentially able to ask, what happens when you push this system to its limits? What happens when you apply fire at a really high frequency? And what we found was that it increases the amount of nitrogen available to both plants and microbes in the soil. Isn't nitrogen a good thing that makes things grow? Yes, but like anything, you can have too much of a good thing. So you wouldn't eat exclusively a pound of walnuts for dinner because it wouldn't make you feel very good. Similarly, oaks are really well adapted to low nitrogen areas. So if we have too much nitrogen, that can result in two things. One is that These oaks are good in low nitrogen systems because they associate with this really cool fungi, ectomycorrhizal fungi, that's really good at getting nitrogen. So when you have too much nitrogen, you might lose that symbiont. In addition, other plants like nitrogen too, like sugar maples. So those plants will grow faster when they get more nitrogen than when the oaks do. So the point of a prescribed burn, Lydia, is to knock out invasives and that kind of thing. And it sounds like what we're hearing is that the nitrogen is going to make a good place for invasives. Well, most of the invasives have, uh, so for instance, let's say buckthorn as an example, does not have the same kind of structure as does an oak tree, that uh, an oak is evolved to tolerate intense fire or even low-grade fires where some of these invasive species are not able to um, withstand the fire. And so when you send a fire through a natural area, you often are doing it for the purpose of controlling invasive species, and it sets those species back. And if, But the soil is going to make it, uh, the nitrogen is going to make it better for them in the future? They well, can I- reestablish? I think it's really the net effect. So the net effect of burning on the system is that you're going to eliminate the invasives because they're going to be burned off. But if we do it too frequently and for too long of a period of time, we might make that soil less hospitable for something like an oak tree, even though we've eliminated the invasives through just manually burning them off. What do we do with this information? Do you, are you guys going to take this uh oak area that you've been burning for 30 years and stop doing it? So we we actually are going to stop burning a portion of it. So we're going to continue burning about half of it because we want to maintain this really unique experiment, but we also want to see what happens when we pull back a little bit. And what you're expecting to happen is less nitrogen and maybe more visibly healthy oaks? That's what we're expecting, and we're actually conducting a big study at the Morton Arboretum this summer where we're going to look at the whole Eastwoods area instead of just this small patch, and we'll be able to see how all of our burning regimes are altering both the soils and the plants over time. 
But the idea wouldn't be to stop in any way burning grasslands in the area because grasslands, um, you want to really knock back the invasives? That's right. And and, uh, grasslands, because of how we've been managing our our landscape, are very reliant on fire to help improve the biodiversity and the strength of the native species there. Most of our native grasses and and forbs have deep root systems, so when the fire comes through, it actually helps reinvigorate those root systems and make those plants stronger. And for non-native species that don't have those same characteristics, it can set them back, which helps this uh, prairie situation. I was just walking through the Deer Grove Forest Preserve, and I saw this big area that had been burned, and there were so many birds on it. I, it was, you know, early or mid-March or something, and I was thinking, well, I'm not going to see a lot of birds today. But I saw a ton of birds, and they were all uh, playing around in the burned area and I think eating a lot. Uh, it's a smorgasbord for some folks out there. It, re- it removes the cover or the places for little animals and other wildlife to hide, that's for sure. But the the plants grow back very quickly, and it's very lush and green after a burn. So in a few weeks, when you walk through that same forest preserve, it'll be a whole new place for you. Oh, yeah. I've seen it uh, time and time again, and it's a, it's a terrific thing. So um, are you – this experiment that you're running at the Morton Arboretum, uh, how, how – when will you know – more results? I mean, it's going to take years of study to to kind of uh, figure out what's going on? Probably. Um, This was the first study that we started when I joined the Morton Arboretum about three years ago. So it took us three years to get from idea to here today. Um, We have new ideas. We want to expand to the rest of the Chicago wilderness, look at how burning frequency and timing is influencing soils and trees across a much larger area and also evaluate it across the whole arboretum. Uh, that'll be really interesting. Now, um, Lydia and I are taking part in a event that's coming up on April 12th at the Morton Arboretum, The Future of Trees, Hope in a Changing Climate, and uh, we're going to discuss the effects that climate change is having on trees. Um, that'll be fun, Lydia. I'm looking forward to it. It's a great big panel discussion. There's about six people on the panel. Yes, there are lots of experts coming in, and it should be a great discussion. There's someone from the uh, National uh, Forest uh, System, and uh, we've got a climate change specialist, and that's, uh, that'll be really interesting. It should be. Uh, people are coming, and uh, you can get more information on the Morton Arboretum website, uh, The Future of Trees, Hope in uh, Changing Climate. It's on Thursday, April 12th at 7 p.m. at the Morton Arboretum. I'll be emceeing, and we'll find out about uh, what happens to trees when the winters are warm. So uh, that's terrific, and uh, it's been good talking with both of you. Dr. Mid- Megan Midgley is a soil ecologist at the Morton Arboretum and is co-author of the new report for in Forest Ecology and Management that talks about uh, frequent low-intensity burns, and they might produce soil outcomes that are incompatible with restoration goals, put a little too much nitrogen in the soil for oaks. And Lydia Scott is a director of the Chicago Re- Trees uh, Region Trees Initiative at the Morton Arboretum. Good to see you again, and thanks for talking with us about uh, the situation with trees and nitrogen. Thank you.
Coming up after the break, we'll have Global Notes, our look at international music, and we'll talk with Catalina Maria Johnson. She is just back from the South by Southwest Music Festival. She had a great time and thought the global stuff was terrific this year. Lots of music from Central America. We'll talk about it after the break. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald, and it's time for Global Notes, our look at international music. And Catalina Maria Johnson has trudged in off the tundras of South by Southwest and is here with some of her picks from the festival. Great to see you. Great to see you, Jerome. And wow, this was a festival to remember. South by really had some incredible music, and you just heard a little taste of that. Can you guess where that comes from. <laughs> that is some kind of indigenous sound. Well, it's interesting. It's Kayla Briet, and she's Dutch Indonesian, Chinese, First Nations, and she has this whole personal diaspora, I would say. You know, her family background is so rich and diverse, and she brings all that in. She's an electronic artist and a vocalist, and she has a guitar, and then she also has to the right of her a something called a Gusheng zither, which is like a Chinese harp, but it's flat. She plays that. And so that was just one little taste, and that was part of a collective from Sacramento, the Soul Collective, and a First Nations record label from Canada, Revolutions Per Minute, RPM Records. So that's pretty cool that they're coming together. Yeah, that's uh, another kind of tendency that we're seeing a lot at South By, which is uh, alliances like the power of the collective and very surprising alliances, as well as some kind of more expected ones in terms of transnational solidarity. That's kind of the next example of music. Let's hear it. What is it? Well, this is Andrea Cruz from Puerto Rico, and she's an indie folk singer-songwriter. And she was part of a series called Sounds from Puerto Rico. And, of course, they expressed a lot of solidarity for the situation in Puerto Rico and really showcased some very different sounds. Like you might not expect these kinds of sounds coming from Puerto Rico. So check it out. No toquemos tierra que no hace falta más que solo es tu cuerpo y yo prefiero en tu pecho volar No toquemos tierra que no hace falta más Nuestra mejor 
That's Andrea Cruz from Puerto Rico. Uh, that's beautiful, lovely, great voice, uh, and it is a surprising sound. And you don't think of Puerto Rico, you don't hear that. It's very interesting because I think in many ways her influences of are kind of a, more of a North American folk, but it, there is a whole guitar-based tradition, a Creole tradition of, of rural music, kind of folk music in Puerto Rico, and there's, there's shades of that too, so that makes it... Very lovely, very delicate, and she does. She has an angelic voice. And she's got uh, is a relatively new artist. I imagine I haven't heard of her before. I had not heard of her. Yeah, South By was a major discovery for me this year. Of course, I kind of planned it that way. I, I forced myself. <laughs> I forced myself to actually go see artists that I've never seen before. <laughs> Good for you. We're talking about South by Southwest with Catalina Maria Johnson, and uh, it's Global Notes here on Worldview. And the next we go to a Toronto mixer. This is an incredible artist, again, from that same showcase, the Soul Collective, the Sacramento Collective, and the RPM Records, the Toronto-based First Nations uh, record label. And they also present concerts um, in all over Canada. This is an experimental electronic artist, ZB1, and his remixes, he's got his own compositions, but I love this remix because it highlights Leanne Betasa Mosuke Simpson, who is an intellectual poet, uh, First Nations activist. And the combination, it's, I really love this combination that we're seeing in a lot of places for, with First Nations artists, with Latin American artists, and they take some very organic, deep-rooted something, which is very magical and mysterious. But then they're using equipment and computers, so there's that fabulous kind of futuristic sense to it all at the same time. So let's listen to ZB1's remix of Under Your Always Light. <laughs> husbands and wife and make them all feel insane with good love. Give birth to a nation in an inglorious way, crawling through feces and urine and dirt and the bloody underbelly of betrayal. She says, use scar weapons to hold the land around them. To hold the land. That's ZB1, and he was at South by Southwest. Uh, I was reading a little something about him, Catalina, because he's got such an unusual sound. And I saw a uh, review of one of his previous works, an EP, and he said uh, about the EP, it's a sonic document of survival and resistance from a millennial-born indigenous person, a survival of the wounded mind, the slate of fear and panics attacks, the depression, a mixture of intergenerational effects and fears of the human condition. 
He's loading a lot in his music. <laughs> I know, I know. And you feel all of that. That's what's kind of amazing. And the space was uh, not ideal. It was noisy. There was a door open, which couldn't get him to close. Yet it came through. And people were transfixed just hearing this come at you. And you're kind of feeling all of that and, and, and wanting to respond. I think that's the power of this music makes you want to know more, think more about it, and respond in some way. We're talking with Catalina Maria Johnson about South by Southwest, and um, our next cut uh, is a little different. It's some high-spirited guys. These guys are from Nicaragua, I guess. Well, this was another interesting thing about this year's South by. For the first time, I started to really notice an overt presence from Central America. Now, Mexico's been present for a long time. Colombia's been present. Spain. There's been a sounds from Spain. From, so for some time, there's been different parts of the Americas well represented. Really, it's one of the best places to go check out what's happening. But Central America, I would say not. There was a rapper from Honduras, a female rapper, Nakuri. There was a group from Guatemala. And there was this group from Nicaragua. And it's La Cuneta Son Machin. Now, the interesting thing about this group is that of its members, three of them are related to singer-songwriters, very well-known, kind of like royalty, musical royalty from Nicaragua, which is the Mejia Godoy brothers. Two of them are sons of Carlos Mejia Godoy, and the other's a nephew. So they're from the this trova, this uh, troubadour folk tradition that was very affiliated with the Sandinista movement. So they're the next generation, and they take it elsewhere. <laughs> they are, they take those folk influences from Nicaragua, they amp them up. It's like the most joyous, happiest music I've ever heard. They're kind of punky. And they're punky, too. <laughs> Let's check out La Cuneta Son Machin. Cuneta de Son Machine, and they, those boys have juice. They, I, I was watching some of their videos online, and their videos have juice. They are very energetic. They're amazing. And actually, this is their second time at South by. I saw them, I think it was about five years ago, and they had saved up money for two years to come by South by. So it's kind of a fascinating to see, well, South by, I think, is kind of taking over the musical world slowly but surely <laughs> kind of like the amazon of music <laughs> yeah. i think uh, and that's the next example one thing i did not expect to see at south by southwest was jazz really 
Really? Yes. And sure enough, there is beginning to be a significant presence of jazz. And uh, I caught an artist who just blew me away, Nubaya Garcia. I'd read about her in The Guardian. It's like one to watch. And then I see the name in the middle of, you know, the, the list of all these artists. I'm like, oh, no, this is these. She's a, got amazing chops. She plays a tenor sax. It's huge. She's, she's petite. And she's her family's from Trinidad. And she's part of, like, this avant-garde Afro- diaspora British black jazz movement that's also very informed by hip-hop and kind of very contemporary sounds without losing the integrity of like the jazz. The it jazz. Sounds like it the jazz. sounds like the jazz. <laughs> so this is When We Are Nubaya Garcia. Any jazz traditionalist just isn't thrilled out of their skin to know that this is a young woman from originally from Trinidad by way of the UK. I know, I know. And, and, and the artists that came before her and after her in this series, which is put together by Jazz Refreshed, which is my understanding, it's a label as well as a series of concerts in London. I mean, they were all young and incredibly accomplished. And... They were somehow very, very, very jazz, and yet somehow very, 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 very fresh. Yeah, truly jazz refreshed. That is great to hear. And <laughs> it's funny that they're there at South by Southwest rather than the such and such jazz festival. Well, you wonder, <laughs> <laughs> but I think I think that's what I'm seeing. South by was was really a, a shade grittier this year than it's been. There were no you know orange Dorito stages this year. There was Lady Gaga. You know there were no the figures were. A little different, and I don't know if it's a response to the the times, or kind of return to the roots, or this uh, constant inclusiveness that's getting them then bringing artists of every genre to the fold. Well, we've got one more to go out on. I think everybody who heard Sudan Archives was thrilled. This was an amazing artist. I mean, interestingly enough, with the name Sudan Archives, I, I immediately assumed, um, you know, an Afro-descendant, an African diaspora musician, but no, an incredibly talented young woman from Cincinnati, now based in L.A., who taught herself, self-taught violinist, and she works with, you know, a digital looping station and a violin, and apparently taught herself looking at Sudanese and music and violinists on YouTube. <laughs> it's and she's so talented. And I mean, she dances and the whole bit? Uh, she well, I mean it, it, there's a lot of musicians of uh, the previous jazz one, Nubaya. She danced with the sax. I think there's um 
an element of performance that some of the most interesting musicians are very aware of. It's not just the talent, and beauty helps, certainly. Talent is the base, the threshold. But then if you are able to communicate something else to the audience, whether it's part of your heritage or your your personality, then you just become unstoppable. And this artist really, I think, is going to make her mark. I can't jump high, but I hear all the notes. I can't be you, no. I can't be you, but I can be true, no. Sudan Archives, that also has some indigenous beat to it, too, doesn't it? <laughs> wow, it's got a Sudanese bit to it. But I think some of that um, percussiveness comes from more of like a rhythm and blues, um, hip-hop, punk, slightly punk tradition. Well, uh you had a good time at South by Southwest. I had a wonderful time. <laughs> uh, this was a, a great year. I mean, I got the logistics down. You have to figure out, this is extending now for miles and miles, over 2,000 concerts. And that's, I think, the official wow. ones. So you have to, like... you, you got to have a strategy. you got to have a strategy. you got to be <laughs> determined. Good pair of shoes. <laughs> open ears and open heart. And Wow. Well, congratulations. You came away with great stuff. Catalina Maria Johnson, great to see you, and thanks for dropping by for Global Notes. Thanks for having me. Tomorrow on Worldview, we are going to talk about the Battle of Adwa, and this is when Ethiopia secured its sovereignty with the defeat of the Italians in the 1890s, and it was a tremendous battle, and the Ethiopian community here is going to mark Adwa Victory Day this weekend, uh, when at the time, the spectator commentated that the Italians have suffered a great disaster, greater than has ever occurred in modern times to white men in Africa. Adwa was the bloodiest of all colonial battles. We'll do a little history tomorrow on Worldview. Hope you can join us for that. We'll also have our global activism segment where we feature people who make the world a better place. And we'll check in with uh, Terra Clay. Terra Clay is an organization, a fair trade group that is importing interesting clay uh, teapots and now ovenware from a remote area in India. And it's beautiful stuff, and we'll talk about that effort with Tara Clay tomorrow on Worldview. Hope you can join us tomorrow. 
Also, don't forget you can subscribe to the Worldview Podcast. Go to iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you go to wbez.org slash worldview, you can sign up there. You can hear some of the programs that we had on last week, including the Black Panther extravaganza last week, where we talked about some of the critical thinking on the Black Panther movie. Maybe our interview with Luke Harding. He's the author of A Very Expensive Poison, the definitive story of the murder of Litvinko and Russia's war with the West. And Luke Harding had a very interesting take on uh, Vladimir Putin and the poisoning in London. Uh, check that stuff out at wbez.org worldview. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Galilee Abdullah and Anna Waters for production assistance. And thanks to Mike Gilmore for engineering. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.